Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build and create a purpose-driven life, a purpose-driven company. We're going to talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can be inspired and take all of these tools and stories and build your own purpose-driven life. My name is CK Lin. I've been a biomedical engineering PhD from UCLA. I've been a uh, director at the University of California. I've been a startup executive. I've been an executive coach. I've done a lot of things. I've been on a search to create a life of purpose, meaning, and fulfillment. Today's guest is a former Australian special force. He's produced a documentary exploring different shamanic rituals all over the world. He's now an intuitive guy. He's a corporate shaman of Quanta, a technology company that helps increase the efficacy uh, and the potency of different plants. Please welcome Kirk Westwood. Thanks, CK. Thanks Good so much you. for being here. Yeah, man. So you are known for to be to be someone who is an expert around intuition. Why don't we start there? Because intuition is something that everyone talks about, from Nobel laureates to corporate CEOs to someone who studies in ashrams. Intuition is someone that all of most of us understand, but it's really hard to language to articulate what that is. Given that you're an expert, how would you define that so that we can help contextualize our conversation? Yeah, sure. I certainly had a different concept of intuition before I studied it and I studied it with different masters and learned that it is different to psychic ability is the projection. That's clear audience, what you hear, uh, clear vision, or to be clairvoyant. But intuition is just what's obvious. Mm. We actually have this inbuilt quality as mammals. that We just know what the truth of something is. It has a visceral response. And the key for me getting into my intuition is the use of the imagination. I believe that our imagination is our soul. And it talks to us all the time. It's just that we need to shut up for long enough to be able to hear what's actually accurate information that's coming through to us. And that comes from trusting your intuition. It comes from consistently doing it over and over again, where you get out of your own way and you let it come. So for me, it comes through in symbolism. And I take that symbol. And like a child, I just ask, what's obvious about that? And I just make it up with alarming regularity. I'm incredibly accurate, especially when it comes to people's uh, stuff. I actually have a bone to pick with psychics. Is there any psychics out there? The bone is that the information that you give, if you have these skills, there's something greater than just giving people hope, which is what most psychics do. It's like, okay, I see it's all dark and handsome. Give them very specific answers to why they do what they do. And you give people the power back as opposed to the world happening to them and realizing that we're actually creating a reality, but this is what you're dedicated to proving about yourself. And that's the greatest use of intuition that I know after 20 years and tens of thousands of hours worth of use and clients. Yeah, I wanted to you know dive a little deeper on the whole concept of intuition. You said it to me when we first met, or a few days ago when we were discussing about this podcast. Like, man, CK, you're so smart. You're too smart for your own good. And it's not the first time that I actually hear a comment like that. I think a, a beautiful quote that's been saying uh, a lot is, "The mind is a great servant, but a terrible master." So mm -hmm. in the understanding of the different layers of the, the thought pattern that's coming your way. How do you discern the truth of what is versus neurotic thoughts versus thoughts that you hear from social media today or thoughts that you maybe saw on an ad somewhere that someone is trying to inception into your brain? So yeah. in the 
a bunch of streams of coming into your consciousness, how do you discern the truth of who you are versus all these other thoughts that's not even yours? Yeah, sure. When you start doing it enough, you start getting a visceral response, a physical response. And a great way to go about that, learning from my teacher, I, st I studied the most with around intuition, William Whitecloud. It's a wonderful moment when you first sit in a circle with three other people reading someone. You say, I don't know anything, but what I get is, and then the other two people who are reading them look at you and go, I got the same thing in a different fashion. And then the person sitting there goes, how could you guys possibly know this about me? Because that is the truth about me and about what I do that I care not to look at, whether it be your, your darkness or your greatness. So the key to learning that skill is simply practice and spending more time at it. But I know that if I'm coming from my mind, that I have a reaction to stuff, it is not intuition. Intuition is, for me, born of symbolism. So I simply choose to get a symbol. And from that symbol, I ask what's obvious about that. And the more you do it, the stronger and stronger you get at the sensation, the discerning between what's imagined and what is real. And that's the, the most difficult task for most people when they start using their intuitions. Go, well, is that what I'm thinking? It's just a case of doing more so you can be more clinical with the feeling, if you will, of what's the truth and what's not. But you can drop a bomb of truth in amongst a set of people without any skills and people just go, that's the truth. It's not an opinion. It's not a statement. It's just the truth. The truth has a vibration. An important thing, the truth is only valid in the moment that you ask it as well. Because the very moment you state that truth, a new truth becomes available to that person just by the, the fact that they can observe that and see that in themselves. Yeah, I, mean, I don't mean to belabor this subjective experience that you have, but what we're talking about is how do you teach someone how to the sensibility of cooking? The great chefs, you just add a little bit of this and ta-da, great cooking. So that's what we're trying to get to from a very novice, maybe mechanical point of view to where you are in a very attuned to your own intuitive sense. As you said, truth has a very specific vibration. Can you say a little bit more about what that feels like, you know, sure. subjectively or what that feels like in a collective? Sure, I think the greatest way to do that perhaps would be to give an example. I'll just do a little bit of a read on you. Sure, well, just give me a moment though, because I always choose to, to do what serves the highest good. And let me just uh, check in with that. So I choose to serve the highest good and I choose to serve CK and his listeners, and in doing so, I allow a symbol to come that represents what I need to know. So we're simply drawing a circle on the table and defining that circle as having insight in it. And I just imaginatively, like a child, I just jump into this circle and just allow a symbol to come. Does it serve the highest good? <laughs> and what's interesting that straight out of the blue, I get the image of old school cartoons, the Warner Brothers cartoons and the Wile E. Coyote lighting the fuse on the TNT boxes and that exploding. Now, that's the symbolism I got. Normally, I wouldn't tell people about the symbol that I get. I just go straight into what that means about this question. Does it serve sure. the highest good? Sure, sure. Is that what it means is this is a wonderful explosion of, of learning. That's not a bad thing. The explosion is not a bad thing. It might end up with black powder on the face, but it's creating laughter for millions of people or mm. it's creating joy for millions of people. It's, see, you make no assumption. You just go, what's obvious about that symbol? I mean, that symbol is it makes me laugh and I love it. And that mm. whole idea that this is going to go off and it's going to have a ripple effect beyond you and I talking about shit because a lot of people out there just talking about stuff instead of experiencing it. 
So it does serve the highest good. So that's an example of using intuition. So another way I could do that is by now that I know that it serves the highest good and if it's still okay with you, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. I could now read you. And how I'm going to do that is I'm just going to observe you. So just, just give me a moment. So I choose to serve and I choose to gain insight into CK. And how I'm doing that is I'm choosing to actually just to notice three things about your physiology that I can see in this image in front of me. And so the first thing that jumps out is how clinical the black is against your skin. Black <laughs> it's literally like black and white. It is the sharpest defined line on this screen that just pops out of me. And what's obvious about that, and again, an important part about intuition is you get a symbol and then without even knowing, you just make it up. You go, and then what's obvious about that is how clinical you are, how, how precise you are in your knowledge of it's black or it's white. The gray area you don't deal very well with. And as I'm saying that, I notice the bilateral difference in your face between your left eye and your right eye. If I hold up and just look at half of your face as opposed to the other half, they are distinctly different which they are for most people, but it never came to my attention until I started talking about how black and white things are for you. There's the analytics of you. You are so incredibly sharp and analytical and being able to nail stuff from the mental, but at the cost of, your, of the right side of your brain, the left side of your body, the creative aspect to it. So you can be too smart, as I said last time, too smart for your own good in that you'll go into to the dissection of what it is that you get as opposed to being in the unknown. Mm. I like to say the unknown is actually where it's at. Mm -hmm. Smart is good. As you said before, the mind is a fantastic slave to the body as opposed to the other way around. Mm. Because when the body's a slave to the mind, it tends to just go around and around in circles, creating the same stuff over and over again. It's this concept that we have, you know, 4 billion bits of information in front of us. We can only focus on about 2,000 things at the same time, they say. But the problem is that we always look for the same 2,000 bits of information to validate our experience. And for you, it's your need to know. So even just as I say that, what's obvious to me is how your shirt line comes down to a very specific point that's pointing at noble warrior. When you start going into intuition, there's just all this information available because I've opened up the four billion bits of information there because I'm an open palette to it. As opposed to what do I think of CK? I could observe this and body language and NLP. All that shit is a waste of time unless you understand the fundamental principle that we are energetic beings having a human experience that express more energetically than we can ever do. So NLP and reading people's body language is like intensely trying to put a language, this is this and this is, it's like dream interpretation. Mm -hmm. What's obvious about the dream? Because it's different for everyone. Water means different things for different people. Is it colloquially in Freudian psychology, Jungian psychology underlying something? Usually, yes. But the specificity of that could be missed because you're not going to what that means about that person. But intuitively, I can look at you and go, wow. I could go way deep with this and do a three hour read on you and go into as a child, what formed this and how, well, how that turns up in business and your personal life and your relationship, how it affects you. We can go into that deeper and deeper and deeper. And the last 10 minutes is generally the most powerful 10 minutes of any read, but 
in this exercise of showing people intuition, it's a case of you just need to get a symbol, what's obvious, and then you just run with that and you make it up and you start talking. I ask people stuff about intuition. They get a symbol like, oh, I've got an elephant and it's got a pink tutu. What does that mean? And they ask me, I'm like, dude, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's your symbol. You have to go into it and you just start talking, but they can't talk. It's, it's uh, What I get is uh, it, trust yourself. That's the key. Just be a child in innocence. Make it up as you go along. Dive deep. And there's so much information there. So I hope that served you. It did. Thank you so much. I, I think you really honing on my hero's journey in terms of really honing my mind as a tool for the earlier part of my life and then realize that this tool is incredibly powerful and precise and and it gets a lot of things done, right? High achievement. At the same time, also comes at a cost. If I purely focus on just on that, because at one point in my life, I was so neurotic and I couldn't sleep. I had suicidal ideation, just all kinds of things because my mind just couldn't shut up and I couldn't stop it from going. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, there's so it's such an importance to look at other aspects of my life, the emotionality, the spirituality, the body and so forth. And that's why the impetus of this podcast is to explore how do we actually create a life of fulfillment and joy? The more of the, one may say the intangible, the esoterics at the same time to me, one quote that came to me during meditation recently is if it's not for joy, then what's it for? Like if life is not for joy, then what's it for? So on this podcast, we, we do inquire a lot about that aspect of it as well. And how do we actually bring harmony in using this powerful tool that we all are gifted with and at the same time using it in a, in a sovereign way with our own agency. So, Yeah, fantastic. Good for you, mate. Because the, And that's the, the, that's the pain of the brilliant mind is to be able to step out of that. It will drive you crazy being smart as you experience firsthand trying to solve that problem. I like to believe the concept of there are no problems to solve is just simply what we would love to create because whenever you're focused on the problem all you're doing is giving more energy to that problem come back to your heart what is it your heart would love to create as beasts we spend all of our time either certainly as men trying to solve a problem that hasn't even happened yet or resolve shit that we can do nothing about but we're never right here in the truth of doing what our heart would love there's a saying from actually doing just uh, in a men's group with John Wineland this morning. I recommend John's work. Check him out online. He's got a lot of work for free online on YouTube around authentic masculinity. And the concept of if you're not creating something in the joy of creating something, then the task is to be conscious, certainly for a man, to be present. But it's worth repeating. If you're not in the, in the effort of creating something, the task to be conscious. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, the focus should be consciousness. If in a moment you're not busy, if you're not enjoying creating something, the vibration of that creation, mm -hmm. then you should train yourself to be conscious. If you want to be happy, it's simple. Do shit you love more often than you do shit that you don't. Like vibration attracts like vibration, but it's not mental. It's not mental. It could be that solving a problem is something you love to do, whether it's equations or whatever it is, algorithms, coding. Uh, people who love coding, they just hook in, they just love it. 
they take the Radarol and a can of Red Bull and away they go for three days and some music and away they go. They love it. That is not solving a problem. And Surface looks like solving It's actually they're, invest, they're in what they're loving to create. Mm-hmm. They're in the vibration of the joy of their brain working. That's actually a feeling. It's actually not a thought. People confuse it with a thought. Thoughts, the brain just gets in the way. It really does. It really does. I can't say it enough. The happiest people I've ever met in my travels around the world, documenting rituals and practices that that change lives miraculously. It's it's the students who turn up and the guru says, and what are you here for? They're like, I had nothing else to do. I just thought I'd come and play. And the guru gets them to stand up. He's like, this is an enlightened being. He has no problem. Is his life perfect? No, but he's just here to play. And the guru looks at the tree and says, what do you see in the it's just a tree, but the wise man knows it's so much more than a tree. But the wisest, no, it's just a fucking tree and that loop. And to see that over and over again in all the cultures that I studied with was then it's the truth. And it has a vibration of truth. When cultures hundreds of years and thousands of kilometers apart say the exact same thing, verbatim, and has the exact same result. I'm like, yeah, that's the essence of why we believe as opposed to the doctrine, the dogma, the rules, so to speak. No, the etheric energy of it is always exactly the same. Get out of your own way. Get back in your body. So I want to challenge, give you a loving challenge a little bit uh, here. That say someone listening, the younger CK, the younger Kurt, you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. You know, I, I, I appreciate the principles. I want to you know, be a child again, embrace the playfulness, bring fun back into my life. How do I do it? What do I do? Yeah, sure. Can we give them something that, that they can actually practice? Like, oh, okay, let me take a micro step towards bring more play and aliveness back in my life. Yeah, I would say it's creating moments in your day when you love being in the vibration of what it is you're doing. It could be playing football could be strumming a guitar. It could be making up poetry. It could be haberdashery. It could be firing an archery bow. It could be dancing. And it's such a go-to. Singing, such a go-to, where the act of doing it is what you love. Not that it's going to give you anything after you're done. It's a concept of this town, Los Angeles. You know, a lot of people come here to, to be a star. But they're way ahead of themselves. They need to have their art form at a point that they can release it to the masses. They need to be a master of their art. Any time before that, you try, before you're a master of your art, you try and bring it to the world, you're going to bastardize your art because you need to eat. It becomes your commerce. Therefore, it's no longer your art. So my advice to my younger self would be twofold. would be one, two, Find art and enjoy that art. And then two would be to surrender more and more. We'll come back to that. You know, the Han Dynasty makes me think of my my great friend, Ross Penman, back in Australia, who is an acupuncturist who's done over 900,000 acupuncture treatments. Wow. And his mentors and teachers had written 23 PhDs on the Han Dynasty. It was back when acupuncture was created. Mm. And I'm going to paraphrase this, but... In a nutshell, for the sake of the story, the Han Dynasty, 100 BC to 200 AD, was one of the greatest periods in in history for any culture. 
And they decreed that everybody must have a commerce and an art. If you didn't have a commerce and weren't earning any money, you were broken on the street, they would make you get an art. They wouldn't make you get a commerce or a job. They'd make you get an art because an interesting thing would happen with your art. If you're invested more and more into the joy of your art, money would occur. Interesting. What you're saying is pursue art first before pursuing commerce. If that is the struggle, huh. it should be symbiotic. It should be going the railway tracks at the same time. Mm. Interestingly, though, they had 10 steps. And I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but the 10 steps of finding an art or finding a commerce were always exactly the same. One, choose to have an art. Yes. Two, investigate many different arts to find the one that you resonate with. Three, yep. choose that specific art that you're going to become a master of that art. Four, study and practice. Five, get a teacher. Six, get a master. Study under a master. Take it to a new level. Seven, and only at seven can you allow yourself to come to the public with your art. If you're a painter, you put on a show. You show people. If you're an actor, you go out on auditions. If you're an archer, you start to compete in competitions, jiu-jitsu, whatever it is. Eight is you then become a teacher of your art. And nine is you become a master of that art, which is literally rubbing your life that only you have had upon this particular art. And then 10 is you find a new art. Now that could take 10 days or it could take 50 years, but they are the steps and all the way along, the joy is that you're in the art, the joy of doing the art, whatever that gives you. Not because if I am successful at this art, it gives me something. So that's what I would recommend to me as a young bloke. I would have looked at football, soccer, which I loved with a passion and camping and, and hunting and being out in the bush, being in the Australian countryside. That would have become my art somewhat. It wasn't until I was much later in life and I got sick and I, I, that I discovered yeah. it gave me a lot of pain. Tell us that story a bit, because I would say it's very normal to resist that inner calling, that intuition. Like For example, I've always been curious. I asked tons of questions and drew my parents crazy ever since I was little. Never in a hundred years, I thought to formalize my, my curiosity. Then it wasn't until a few years ago, oh, I should totally do a podcast. <laughs> so now I get to do something that I always wanted to do ever since I was little. Tell us the story where you resisted that inner calling and then the sickness that it caused. And then finally you surrender to this calling. Yeah, sure. So I, I was going pretty well. And then my girlfriend said, I want you to meet a healer. I'm like, I don't need a healer. I was very much into NLP and self-help work and, and trying to forge my career ahead. And she said, but he's an Olympian and he's a gold medalist and he's Australian. I'm like, of course I want to meet him. So I met him and as I walked up to him, he put his hand on me and I burst into tears. And I'm like, what was going on here? And he cracked me open. He and two other Polynesian workers just cracked me open. And I came out of that with this mantra that I now choose the powers of my conscious and subconscious mind to blast away any limitations imposed upon my body, mind or soul. Very NLP, very ego-driven, I can control this state management, burning up my adrenals. Within six weeks, I was sick, very sick. And I became very sick. And over the following months, I wilted down to over 100, just 110 pounds, was sleeping 20 hours a day. And the doctor said, you've got something called post-viral syndrome and you'll never get better from this. No one's ever gotten to you. This is what you've got. And it has a very high suicide rate. And I was very 
dark, the depression feeds, the illness feeds the depression. And I started turning to alternative healers to see if there's any way out. And I found a few who lit the fuse in me. And over a period of time, I started getting stronger. And one of those things was the use of intuition. So I started using the intuition because I just wanted to be either a better athlete or healthy again, or a better performer. That's all I wanted it for. But people started turning to me to use my intuition to heal them. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be a healer. So I ran away from that. And I was a jackaroo on the Australian Outback for a bit. And I was an adventure guide doing shit I wanted to do as a kid. And then I was did the ultimate runaway and joined the military. And I joined the, a commando company in Australia and trained up for special forces selection. They let me in as a 35-year-old because uh, I helped two friends of mine who were special forces solve some problems in a unique fashion. And they were excited to see how I could use that to help SF operations for Australians, SAS and commandos. So they trained me up and four days shy of finishing my Green Beret selection, I got stabbed in the eye with a stick that had explosives on it. And oh, I shit. Ate, ate away the cornea of my left eye. Mm. In darkness for five days and for a year I tried to save the eye. Post note is that doing some exotic rituals, I've now regrown the corneal tissue in my left eye back oh, to... Wow. 600 micron from 50 micron back up to 600 micron documented it really is miraculous stuff out there so then i stepped away from the military I, for a year i helped them create a dynamic called the luck bubble which is how we create luck in combat and then post leaving i started doing more and more of that but i became enamored with the concept of luck like where does it come from so i started traveling the world and documenting rituals and practices and gurus and shamanic principles that would miraculously create what couldn't be explained and then producers heard of me and brought me to the states to turn that into a tv series after a few months of back and forth and my galleries it wasn't going to work and i backed out of that and someone asked me if i would create luck for them for different companies which i did and then it was until a year ago, after 20 years ago is when I got sick, that I just went, this is what I am. I've been resisting it for so long that I didn't want to be a healer, such resistance to it because of the concept I had in my mind about it. And finally, what shifted? Yeah, what, what shifted from definitely a no to now really embracing as a you know corporate shaman, right? What happened was I was in an ayahuasca ceremony. The uh, shamans were up from the Amazon, and because I have a, a rule about never doing any medicines or journey medicines unless it's with the tribe, with the heritage, with the lineage that have harvested it because they will save your life. And you know, it's funny, even as we're talking about it now, it's very visceral for me to remember how the first few times I took the medicine, it didn't work. Mm. I took 10 glasses, didn't work. And I was so resentful of that. It wasn't until I gave up on it that it actually hit me and I died. I stopped breathing. It's not to be trifled with. I stopped breathing. Someone came over and said, he's not breathing. I could hear them, but I couldn't react to it. And they're freaking out. And the doctor comes over and everyone's freaking out. He's not breathing. His heart's not pumping. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm dying. I'm, I'm actually, this is it. And I was pissed. I was like, so much shit I've wanted to do and I haven't done it. And the shaman said, no let him die and they're like what he's like he needs to die and i was like oh okay so i just fight and gave over to it and all of a sudden boom back in my body for what the 
just and then just cried hours inconsolable just bore my eyes out just shifted in me to that sense of surrender and the ceremony at a later stage my own voice came to me as an old man and it said very clearly kirk in the battle for happiness thy sword shall be named surrender and i was like holy shit, that was the thing we have such concepts in our mind about the way we want it to be or the concept that's born of of our wound as a child it's not born of the truth about what our heart would love to create because the fact is we don't even know we have this limited experience of billions of possibilities we just refer to our own experience ah, i don't want that why because that's painful i'll go for that but i can't really have that because my heart would want that but i know that'll end in tears you want to see someone shit? make them go after something they love go after that then you'll see this stuff come to the surface as i say to people about journey medicines when you go into it your asshole will be handed to you you're you out you. you will get torn a new one that's how you know you're getting your money's worth people think yeah. it's this druggy no it's not it's yeah. when you rock up and you're late because you're always late it's when you someone betrays you beforehand it's in the ceremony when you can't breathe because you don't trust it's, yeah. it's afterwards when it was a wonderful experience you go back to your family and they destroy you that is what she's there to show you she's there to show you your darkness once and you can do it a thousand times until you see your darkness, you can't move you to the next level, which is to show you your greatness. And you might do it a thousand times before you only own what that greatness is because you've denied it like mm-hmm. me healing. And then the final step is when you accept that they bring you to God for want of a better term, the medicine, no matter what the DMT is from around the world, it's the same thing. It's the same journey, the same effect, the same shamans talk about the same thing. You mm-hmm. come to the of God going, ah, this is what spirit is. And it sets you free. Long answer to your short question. Sorry, Mike. I love that quote. In the battle for happiness, thy sword shall be surrender. It's really simple to say, but uh, but also it's one of the hardest things that I ever have to do. And thanks to medicine work, I'm able to touch that a bit and get some hyper reality of where in my life I'm actually resisting, where in my life I'm actually holding on to it, being attached to actually cause my own suffering. And at the end of the ceremonial work, I can say, do I want to keep holding on to that and mm-hmm. continue to suffer? Or are there work, you know, practices I can do to let go of those things and then really courageously uh, move towards a life of more fulfillment and joy versus a life of being self-righteous. It's, it's wonderful to hear, mate, and I get that from you even when we first met 12 months ago. It's so very important because in my work, it's people would rather be right than happy. They'd rather be right and safe about the way the world is for them and the way things occur to them than actually happy. So they'll go about sabotaging themselves to guarantee that they can prove they can't trust anybody or I don't have the resources or I'm not enough. To the extent where we sabotage ourselves, wonderful things happen and straight away afterwards to the extent where an athlete or a, a, a lottery winner perfect example 70 percent of lottery winners have nothing to show for it within five years 70 percent because they'd rather be right than actually happy so giving the wealth to someone who just wants it without having to change nothing will change they will burn that they need to work on themselves so I'm curious to know your point of view, because as a practitioner, you're a guide to other people going through their life. And from my personal experience, I've yet to have a spontaneous 
wisdom download. That's just not how it works for me yet. I've, I've heard about it somewhere. <laughs> Someone have had that experience. Not me personally. Nothing is ever spontaneous. It's always earned through difficulty, suffering, and realization like, oh, okay, I can still be happy and fulfilled in spite of all this. And I can also let that go too, right? I have that choice, that sovereignty, the agency afterwards. I have to earn it. There's no way I could have been given that. So I'm curious to know, now that you're a guy, do you feel that going through that darkening of the soul and the trial and tribulation and in crucible, whatever metaphor that you use, do you think that's required or could they be given that wisdom with less pain and suffering? Yeah, right. It's interesting because no one turns up at the ashram when they're healthy. Mm -hmm. you know? It's, it's the thing that drives us. The status quo is that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We don't even realize the level at which we are dysfunctional. And the saying is the castle must crumble before the empire can be built. And thus the dark night of the soul that every great work talks about is the catalyst for change. One doesn't need to become enlightened to have a great life. In fact, I don't even recommend it. I do not recommend it. Uh, that's, that's actually an interesting point. Please uh, say more about that. It's the one can lead a great life simply being aware of what their dysfunction is. I know a lot of people who are completely ignorant to their stuff who lead a great life. I know a few film stars and rock stars who are completely ignorant to their stuff and yet luck just falls upon them because of their ignorance. One must be cautious or careful about stepping into the realm of trying to understand themselves because that is a Pandora's box. And mm. you've got to go through all the bad stuff before you get to the gems underneath it all. So one must ask themselves, why am I on this pursuit? Do I just want to be healthier, happier? Usually it's health because someone's sick and so I don't want to die. I want to get healthy again. That's the greatest catalyst. But then there's incredible pain, relationships, works, dissatisfaction. But be careful about what you wish for. I chose to have everything blown away and it was shit. And I wanted to kill myself. I was I slept, I wasted years of my life. And even from that, it was pain. I've died more than once. Don't tell my mom. She'd be very upset with me. But perhaps at times it's better to let sleeping dogs lie. Be sure about what you want. People think they've just got to go the whole way. And if you're sick, then yeah, you need to go the whole way sometimes, but don't leave it too late when it's stage four cancer. Leave it when you're not feeling well or you're lethargic. Leave it when you're not as fit as you used to be and you, you can't turn up for your kids because you're exhausted. When you get that little bit of a heart anxiety, whatever's going on, you take up meditation to, to deal with it. These little things can improve your life. These biohacks can improve your life. But to go down the road of knowing thyself, which is the meaning of life, many cultures, the only thing they can agree on, they can't agree with what happens after this life. No culture can agree with what happens after this life. And yet in the great works of all these cultures, they all say the same sentence. Meaning of life, know thyself. Know what your shit is. Know what you're dedicated to proving about yourself. Know what you actually love. And then know God. God within you. Spirit within you. Universe, whatever you want to call it. It's as simple as that. So there's ways to do that without crumbling the castle. And that's by being aware before that, that you can do the little things to lead a happier and healthy life. Then unpacking it all. I just say be very wary about that.
it's the story of um of the young man who turns up at the monastery and says i want to dedicate myself to god and the monk takes him out on the boat and holds him under the water he comes up he says i can't swim the monk says i know pushes him back under again he says i still can't swim he says, i know and until he finally just lets go and thinks he's drowning pulls him back in coughs up all the water and the monk says what were you thinking about so what do you mean was i thinking about it i was thinking about getting breath i was thinking about staying alive i was thinking about all the shit that i haven't done in my life monks is great when that happens again and the only thoughts you have are of enlightenment come on back we gladly that was a profound story makes me wonder right why all these questions and seeking and curiosity that i have some of my friends who are more practical accuse me of being too philosophical because I want to know, I want to understand. I wanted to have a, an understanding, a mental model of things versus for some of them, they just wanted to basically live and then be happy and then deal with whatever issues that comes up versus thinking about the nature of suffering and joy and fulfillment. So what you said is very poignant. It's very insightful. So let me ask you then, CK, in this search that you're on, mm. this investigation is seeking. Do you enjoy the seeking? Do you enjoy, like you said, as a child, you were so curious. I love it. Right. Well, then therein lies the rub. With any creation, there's two ways you can go about it. One is coming from the dysfunction of our stuff. There's a wound I had where I'm not enough and I'm never going to be safe, for instance, until I work out the way the world is. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know the way, the child, I don't know the way the world is. Well, if I work that out, I'm going to be safe. But because you're coming from your stuff, not it guarantees that you're going to be right about you not knowing the way the world is. Your very pursuit of it is the very thing that can't bear any answers. By the very nature of where you're coming from and going after this thing right from the very start is dedicated to pain, proving what you believe about yourself, which is I don't know. That said, there's another relationship to it, which is your heart, which is the curious child in you. Mm. that just loves the investigation of the unknown, mm. that just loves playing in the unknown. Mm -hmm. When you're coming from that, that's when you're on fire. Yeah. That's when your true greatness comes out. That's when your exploration, that's when your questions, which you haven't had written down, are coming to you. That's when you get a chance for this thing to go to a whole new level for you. That is the key for you and key for any creation is the positioning you come from is the most important thing without a doubt. And so you understand that every bit of self-help anybody does without understanding that is doomed to only create the wound that they're trying to get away from. So guys who are watching, who are listening to this right now, what Kirk just made is a very important insight. If you're coming from seeking, pursuing something in order to fix something, in order to compensate something, in order to be better at something, mm -hmm. that's not a good recipe. But if you're coming from sheer the love of it, the, the curiosity of it, the play for it, that does a much better place, right? Coming from that space. Is that an accurate recap of what you just said? Very much so. Many different ways to say the same thing, but you're spot on. Positioning is everything. everything. Yeah. Especially in the creation of something, the birth of any creation that goes viral is that the very energy that it was created with is the energy that the public take on. Mm. Now let's think of social media. The explosion of social media took place with the birth of Facebook. Facebook was what really was the catalyst that got traction. Is there any doubt 
and again, I, I don't know the guy personally, but I know stuff about people. And this is not uh, not judgment at all, just an observation. Sure. It's undoubted to me that the birth of Facebook was born of I'm not enough. So is it any coincidence that the ripple effect that has on society is billions of people thinking that they're not enough? The energy to which something is created is carried through. It's a ripple effect. So the most important thing you can do for yourselves, for your family, for humanity is come from your power, come from your joy, come from your love. Not that this can give me stuff, but the act of doing it brings me joy. And we're not talking about the dysfunction of causing pain in any way, shape or form to any other person. That is not your joy. That is not your joy. That is wounding that you need to satisfy. And there's a difference between your joy, your heartfelt joy, and what feels good because you're getting off on it because it's validating your wound. There's a difference. And people need to understand that because you'll say, well, what about the mass murderer? He got around, he said he thoroughly enjoyed killing those people. There's a delineation between the two. Be smart enough. Have the courage to discern between that yourself, to understand what is a joy from my heart, a truth, as opposed to I have this impulse and I have this voice in my head that says I need to do these horrible things. If it involves in any way, shape or form, hurting someone physically, mentally or emotionally, other than let's say hunting where you're using the whole of the animal for sustenance, not just hunting for sport, hunting for sport. The fuck is that? Seriously. I grew up, the first job I had as a kid was trapping rabbits, hunting foxes and kangaroos. We didn't waste any of the carcasses ever, ever, all the skins. It was balance of nature stuff. And that was bred into me from a young age. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. A hundred percent agree with you. And I believe we make what we are. If we come from a place of not enough, the, whatever we make is going to amplify that come from place of not enough. But if we come from a place of love and bliss, doing it for the joy of it, that's going to propagate. That's what I believe in. However, let me challenge to be on the devil's advocate. I believe someone said in doing your podcast, something like great work comes from suffering or great pain. And if you look at the great artist, what's that guy without an ear, the painter? And he was like, he made great art. Bingo. That's right. Thank you. Not my forte. So there you go. Uh, yeah. So he, he was definitely not appreciated, not compensated, and he was in great pain such that he even cut off his own ear. So in, in hindsight, after his death, and you're like, oh my God, what an amazing artist. So I'm curious to know how you would reconcile the two. I don't agree with it. You don't I, agree with it. I don't agree with it. Mm. I witnessed it firsthand. As my mentor used to say to me, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. And that's the difference. Because life is up and down and all around and there's no rhythm to it. And coming to love that rhythm is the key as opposed to being in the future trying to solve the problem that hasn't happened yet or resolve your shit in the past is being in the flow of this is what it's presented to me right now. Only the fool looks at it. I say this all the time. Only the fool looks at a, a detour as anything less than saving their life because they don't know that if they keep on driving that direction and they're going to go off a cliff and die in the darkness. They don't know that, but it's like, oh, shit. It's like the story of the, the farmer and he's standing there and the, his neighbor comes over and says, how are you? He said, ah, I said, I've been up and down. He said, 
He said, how's the young bloke? He said, oh, he broke his arm. He said, that's terrible. He said, actually, no, it's great. How's that? Oh, the next day the uh, army came along and they only wanted fit young men, so they didn't take him. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, actually, no, it's not. Because the next day he fell down a well and broke his other arm. Oh, that's terrible. I actually know it's perfect because the next day we we're working in the mill and he he got his arm stuck in the, the grinder. And, but because of the cast that we had on it, it, it didn't break his arm off. Oh, that's great. Actually, no, that's terrible. And you can go back and forth. Only the fool looks at the detour as anything less than, and, than saving their life or being the best thing that's ever happened. The problem comes from when people deny their pain. If this country would simply step into what they feel as opposed to projecting it out into the world. Just own it. You're scared. I feel a little scared. Talk yourself through it. Oh, what's that bullshit? Because when you, what we resist persists. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't trust the bastards. Therefore, I'm going to have to get ready for doomsday. I've got to be a doomsday prepper. If enough people believe there's going to be a doomsday, guess what happens? But it's your misbehavior that actually created it because you weren't willing to just be with your pain. If the president of the United States would simply be with how scared he was, he is as a little boy, his thirst for power, because that's all he cares about. I'm not a politics here. I'm a visitor. I'm a guest. I don't have a dog in this fight, but I'm an expert at reading people. And he's a terrified little boy because there's only one thing that comes from someone who desires power so much, and that is they get shamed. They were shamed as little boys, little girls, grossly shamed. And the only way they can combat that fear of ever being shamed again so horrifically is to get as much power as possible. They eat like pigs. They have sex like pigs. They act like pigs. They only care about themselves. They're narcissistic. Harvey Weinstein's, Donald Trump's, it's your Adolf Hitler's. I could go on and on. Yeah. So I'm curious, now that you are a corporate shaman, people have all kinds of level of consciousness and awareness work with you and you also go into different corporations giving speeches so you meet all kinds of people right so with that how do you serve them for the highest good because they may be narcissistic and have no interest in whatever it is that you're talking about or they may be a total seeker and they'll have pray five times a day or that kind of regular practice so with a wide spectrum how do you meet them where they're at and serve them at the highest good yeah, mate, this is a great question because I simply choose to serve the highest good and then allow symbolism to come to me and it tells me for that particular audience. And mm. it doesn't always work in my favour. Before I was doing more of the speaking engagement, I did a speaking engagement last year in which I stood up and hadn't done something for a while. I was like, yeah, I really don't want to do this gig. Okay, what serves? Okay, you're going to open with a racist joke. I'm like, What? How in the world is that going to serve? So I told this joke and I tried as best I could to explain that it wasn't racist, it was in service and, and downplay the, the, the racism within it. But it was way too short a period of time to get across the details of what this was about. And to be honest, I wasn't fully prepared. But what happened after that was a audience member stuck his hand up and he was African-American and he said, Why? If you chose to serve the highest good, would you open with that joke? Like, what's the matter with you? And I was like, huh, it's a good question. Good question. Let me tune into that. There's a whole hubbub going on. Everyone's like, ooh, in the room. And there's this shift of energy. 
and I was spotlight on me and timing wise, they'd run out of time and they had to eject from the venue and there was all this stuff. And I was like, this is what I'm here for is to show him how he is. And that's going to be a template. It's going to set him free, but it's hurt. Him, the, the African-American guest. Yes. Yes. Okay. Who asked the question. And then I was, I was like, oh, and I doubted myself. I went, I can't say that. I can't do that in front of all these people. It's going to hurt him. But also, and I went, ah, okay, we don't have time for it. And I said something else. I did not go with what I got. But what I truly got could have set him free, which was that is the way that he particularly sees the world. Mm. Or, the time which is i don't get any respect mm. and he's dedicated to proving that over and over again and out of the four billion bits of information that's the two thousand bits of information he's looking for all the time because mm. that was not my intention at all but that would have served the highest good to go in and do a read on him say would you mind i'll do it everybody i don't care where people think they need to be right now this service will serve more than one person in this room greatly and deeply because it always does mm. myself and in going into what how his stuff plays out, he literally had just had a win. Before I got up on the stage, he got up on the stage with a huge win that he'd had. And he was glowing. He was glowing with the amount of victory that he was feeling worthy. And he had the respect of his peers for the first time. It is no coincidence that the very next thing, no one else was thinking that he was disrespected, but to him it was a huge disrespect that had slighted him in his moment of glory. That's how a footballer wins the NFL and the next day they do something dumb. Mm -hmm. At a lottery winner blows their cash. We're dedicated to homeostasis. What would have served the highest good. So how I do it now is that I don't argue with what I get. I always start with the insight that I get in teaching people. Then I take them into a visceral practice to give them an experience of spirit. First-hand, undeniable experience of spirit. And then I open it up to the audience and I choose to serve the highest good and I pick out and I can just feel who has the question. And I just trust when it comes, not knowing. And to me, I shit my pants with that stuff because it's not prepared. Can you give us an example? I, I like what you're saying because as a transformational artist myself, how do I give people an experience versus just intellectual understanding such that they subjectively experience like, oh, this is true for me, whatever that experience it is. But not everyone's ready for, let's say, ayahuasca or breath work or even like box breathing. So how do you, for a general audience, give them an experience such that they experience their own truth in a very short amount of time? Yeah, great. So I created the temple up now just before COVID hit, and that was to do that every single week. And what I do is I take rituals and practices from around the world that I experienced firsthand, and I give people an experience of that. And they're very wide and very varied, and I just trust that the audience for that week is ready for it. It's a huge amount of trust. And in the satsang, it's somewhat it's satsang. You know, the guru sits there, and no matter what the culture, after they're done with the practice, he sits there and goes, I guarantee you that person's got shit going on. So it's effectively the same thing. It's the concept that you need to be present in the moment. Anything that I pre-planned beforehand is actually just me trying to force myself upon it. Mm. I have such a wide repertoire that I know that every week I can turn up in fancy dress, in a temple where, for instance, there's the Top Gun episode, the Top Gun sermon, where people turn up and they jump on a 747 inflatable slide to get into the temple. And then we're in the temple and in the church, they get a chance to experience firsthand all the stuff that I didn't see in Top Gun the first time around and how that parlays into their language of their own experience. So, for instance, we'll do dozens of different styles of breath work. 
dozens of different styles of plant medicines, if that's the calling, hundreds of different styles of physical work. And here's an interesting thing that all animals, all mammals shake uncontrollably after trauma. If they do not shake, they are dead within a short period of time. Mm -hmm. How large the animal is, is to how long it will take them to die. A bird will die in your hands. A mouse will die within hours. A deer, a nyala on the Serengeti will die within weeks after that trauma if they do not shake uncontrollably. So they come back to the herd, they stand in the middle of the herd and they shake uncontrollably. And they move where energetic beings having a human experience. And they've been the biggest bangs for my buck in a group of people is taking them into shaking work, whether it's ecstatic shaking or breath work leading to static shaking. I mean, there's 20 cultures around the world who've tried different types of shaking or embodiment. Five rhythms dancing, ecstatic dancing. They're just different forms of moving energy through your body. Breath work, hemibolismic breathing. There's so many different ways that you need to move the energy. Anything up here is just psychological masturbation. So I'll talk about it at the start. You've got to have an experience where they go, shit. And because they're in a, in a space that's been defined as holy, for want of a better term, spirit comes through them. Call it what you will. But people are being reborn right in front of you and having the changing moments of their life. And it comes back to a question you asked earlier on. What are those? I haven't had those moments you talked about where the world was now different for me in ways that I cannot possibly explain. That shit happens on the daily from the experience when we define a space as holy and have something akin to this Holy Spirit moving through them. You don't have to believe it. It happens a lot faster when you do. Yeah. You don't have to believe it. You just got to turn up when you're shit. That is undeniable. And that doesn't mean that you become a monk. It doesn't mean you become abstinent. I always joke that some monk somewhere is reading ancient texts, texts and he's having a look at the text and he's like, Bible text, and he's like, oh, the word is celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> the translator wrong. Translator yeah. wrong 300 years ago, 1700 years ago. Damn it. Shit. That is the big joke because you cannot deny true nature. And the yeah. denial of that true nature, denial with the animal within the masculine, the dark masculine, the desire mm -hmm. is a recipe for disaster that we have seen throughout the Catholic Church, Boy Scouts of America. Why? Because of the denial. Go into the ancient arts, go into the tantric arts, the Vedic arts, the embracing of the whole of you, because what you resist persists. Denial is not just a river into Egypt. It's something that we do every day. The embodiment, it takes the power out of it because then you can come from the truth. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that, man. One of the origin story of Noble Warrior, I would say, is because I was so into the mind that my life became numb. Hmm. And I felt nothing. It's the total opposite of being joyous and alive. It's just, I'm just going through the motion, right? So when my friends asked me like, hey, CK, why are you always seeking and experimenting and, and exploring and having conversations about all different modalities? Why are you so curious even after all this time? Because I'm very well learning a lot of different domains. Mm -hmm. And I don't really have an answer until recently that, well, because I've gone through what I've gone through, the experience of like barely alive really as a human being, just like barely holding on. 
to getting acquainted to the body, the heart and the spirit. Oh, this is awesome. Amazing. And now I want to learn skills to deepen the present moment, my experience of the present moment, such mm -hmm. that really experience the majestic, what's possible, right? The beautiful nature of being human beings. And you know, as you said earlier, being a spiritual being, living a human life, how do we actually celebrate, you know, this Disneyland of this reality. So I really appreciate what you said. Yeah, mate. And your testament to it, to being overwhelmed because it's just, it's easy to talk about coming from spirit, loving life and being out in nature and life is good and being grateful, except when you're in the shit, when it hurts. You and I both know what that's in how it just feels like this is never going to end. This, this is what life is like. And to all your listeners, I just want to say that CK and I can both vouch for that. It's not always going to be like that. There will be better days, but there's work to do. There's work to do to understand why you're in that pain. Don't give up. Don't give up. Go out into nature. Be with nature for an hour. Just sit there and be with nature for an hour. And I guarantee you that your relationship to the nature in that hour is your relationship to the world, to partners, to the feminine, to the masculine, whatever it is for you, whatever a partner looks like for you. That's it's a template. She's just of service to you. It's a cure all for many things is being out in nature. So I just, you know, you can speak of that as well. Just please don't give up. Just get out into nature, choose something you'd love to create and start that upward spiral. And then start learning about yourself and understanding why you think that way. Because that's what's creating your pain. You just have a model. That's the way the world is. You know what anger is? Powerlessness. Yep. Powerlessness. You feel powerless about the way the world is and the way you are in it. And it's never going to change. So therefore, that's what you go about creating. You're only seeing the 2,000 bits of information that you always look for. As opposed to this whole realm. Come back to stasis. Come back to being energy in the forest. Come back to being lying in the waves. Come back, let that vibration come through you. Yeah. And do the work on yourself. Takes work. Takes work. One of the things that we do say on this podcast a lot is um, you know, we aspire to make a huge impact in the world, and but that's outside of our sphere of influence. And because it's outside of our sphere of influence, we get frustrated and angry and just pissed off because we can't change it. So the place to start, my approach has always been inside out. So start with the body, being in nature, just sit, taking care of my body, exercise, the diet and all that stuff. And then I can grow my sphere of influence because I can only always control my own choices, my own thought patterns mm -hmm. or a journal or thing, things like that. So I can start there and then go to the macro versus going from macro to the micro. So. Yeah, wise words, mate. And there's even those personality types where that is the problem because they're focused externally on helping others. My value is only based on what I can do for other people. Mm. My value is only based on me being perfect. My value is based on only how much I can get done. But inherently, what's at the core is I'm not enough. Taking care of one's own needs is the core of many belief systems. I know certainly within Tantra and the Vedic system, what do I need? There is had a... Ariana Hall, a uh, great teacher of, of Tantra and authentic masculinity within LA. 
look her up and a fantastic artist too. I mean, wonderful. But she said something once about how the difference between needs, wants, and desires mm. in that order. And the pose that she had for me was you're at the airport and you get called up just before your flight to the desk. It looks like they might have a first class flight for you, but you've got to pee badly. Bladder is full <laughs> and they're boarding and you still haven't called your lover. Which one is a need? Which one is a want? And which one is a desire? Uh-huh. Question goes to you, CK. Which one's which? Well, a need would be a biological. It's urgent right here and now. Right? Simple. Nope. Need. Not negotiable. Yeah. Wants. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a, a toss-up between the lover and the first class, I would say. It depends on how much the lover you love the lover, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say for most people, the desire of a first... It's not a want. I don't want first class. I desire first class would be awesome for a 14-hour flight back to Australia. Mm -hmm. Desire. But the want is... I want to call him, but if I don't, it's not the end of the world. He'll understand. I'll call him when I get there. Mm -mm, mm -mm. You don't give up a chance for to have something you've always desired because you have a kind of a want to satisfy. And the same is the metaphor is for life in Vedic terms that you need to take care of your needs. That should be your first thought. What are my needs? I need to be, I need to feel alive daily. Like I literally need to be physical every day. If I don't do that, my health wanes and I'm mental about it. And it's just, I can't do my, the rest of my world. I'm not physical in the ocean, going for a run, a bike ride, dancing in my body. It's a need. It's not a want. It's not a desire. It's actually a need. I have a need for companionship. I desire a great partner, but I've actually learned, I'm actually in the middle of a six month feminine cleanse at the moment. I'm four months into being pure with the feminine, just simply um, light and polite. There's no fantasy about the feminine. There's no engaging. There's no flirting. There's no dating. There's no swiping. There's nothing. No sex, no masturbation, nothing. Dying a death to that which you desire. I'll be honest, it's doing my head in, but it's giving me incredible insight into my actual needs. I desire the feminine, but that doesn't mean I have to need her. But I have a need for companionship to be seen, to be felt, and to feel. That's a need. I don't have to get that from a partner. But that delineation, very important. So if people just sit down coming from this call and just go, what are my needs? What are my desires? And then what are the things that I want? Desire to own beautiful homes that I love. It's not a need, but I need to be in a secure house and living in Venice. I need to be in a, a secure place where I can relax and I can breathe and I can meditate and I can have a backyard to work from. That's a need. Very important. It can change your life, just naming your needs. Because then mm. you realize, holy shit, I don't give this to myself. Because you know what? It's not up to the world to give it to you. Yeah. To give it to yourself. Yeah, you're sovereign beings. Don't forget to take care of your own needs for sure. I had to go through my own dark night of the soul to realize, wow, this deprivation of what my soul and my heart need literally is killing me. Hmm. So... It's not a want, it's not a desire, it's actually a need. I'm curious, what were the needs for you? What, what were the ones, some of the ones you discovered? One fundamental one is this curiosity, this, uh -huh. this, this desire, this need for a deep conversation. If that needs being shut off because parenting or whatever, it's not appropriate or it's shunned, 
then parts of me died a little, right? Mm. A part of it is, yeah, and also a need to be of service to someone. It's really important for me to actually share. My currency of love is wisdom and information. I wanted to be with people who actually want to geek out about this type of things. Hence, again, the start of this podcast. Yeah, it yeah. comes back to that same stuff. It's such, such a great example of needs as opposed to some people might be a desire. Yeah. As we talked about before with the art side of things, that becomes a need. That's a need. If you want to sort stuff out, get into your art. And getting into your art is a need. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. Now we're getting a little meta, but I think it's important to, to talk about um, this idea of desire. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, one school of thought is, hey, if you want to manifest things in life, you want just as much gravity towards that thing, right? If it doesn't occur, or you're willing to die for it. Another school of thought is being equanimous, right? You want it, you're committed to it, but you're also not attached about having it be a particular way. So I'm curious to know, in navigating of the needs, wants, and desire, as a practitioner of this metaphysics uh, conversation, what's your take on the self-importance or the, the gravity towards something that you intend to manifest in the world? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a good question. The passion of meditation, the silent retreat, if people have ever had a chance to go and do it, I thoroughly recommend it. Nothing better than sitting for 14 hours of meditation, not being able to communicate with anybody. You can't even look at somebody. It's just head down, get your thing done for 10 days. And you learn a lot about yourself. And the basic principle, certainly a model of the passion of meditation is that equanimity is where it's at. I don't desire and I don't push away from anything. I don't move away or towards anything. I am equanimous. And that is the nature of the task for a man is to become devoid of desire or repulsion. I don't agree with it. I don't agree because I've seen over 20 years, I think it was like a communism concept, great concept, but we can safely say after decades of watching it, it doesn't really work all around. It's not holistic. It's a great concept. For passion, I see the same thing because I still see pain within individuals. We inherently want to create. We want to, as William would say, we want to be and to become. It's just inherent within us to be and to become. So desire is natural. To desire the feminine as a masculine, the opposite sex, or whoever you're into, is an inbuilt desire. And owning that desire can set you free. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Doing no harm to others, creating what I would love. So there's a metaphysics that takes place. The secret was so very good at bringing the masses to the possibility of energetic work. But unfortunately, it wasn't complete. And what was interesting about the secret was it was actually born of the work of Esther and Jerry Hicks. Yeah. Abraham. Yeah. Uh, teachings of Abraham. Anybody out there have a look at Esther channeling Abraham entity of wisdom. It's interesting because channels, to me, when I read them, they're all the same personality type. They all literally, the only way they can believe the incredible knowledge that's coming through them is to literally become someone else. Their voice changes, their physicality changes, their temperature changes. They literally, energetically become that which they believe. And it comes through them. And it's the only way it works for them. 
But I can channel the exact same information just by using my intuition and go, oh, this is the truth, and it just comes through me. But that's the way that they do it. So channels are simply people who are psychotic enough to believe there's somebody else and can fully go there and act a role so that it comes through them. I'm not saying it's good or bad, no judgment. It's just what they do. But it's fascinating to me because we all have access to this information. And as you talked about before, how do you know when it's the truth or not? Well, for them, it's because it comes through them and they have a physical feeling. It's not me. Truth is, it's Neil Donald Walsh with um, conversation with God. Yeah. Same. Coming through him. All of us have access to that. So it goes back to the secret. So it was only partially true about that, which you just need to imagine you've already got it and keep on imagining it. No, that doesn't work. Because if I keep on saying I'm, I'm seven foot tall, I'm seven foot tall, I'm seven foot tall. What I'm, if I'm going to say it over and over again, then I really don't believe it. I'm wealthy, I'm wealthy, I'm wealthy. Got to keep on saying it. You don't actually believe it. Yeah. As opposed to making a choice. I choose the end result of being wealthy. What's the emotion of that end result? Oh, the emotion of that end result for me is because oh, wealthy is just simply just owning my own home, love, and the family that I love, dogs that I love, a truck that I love. Yeah, I can feel that. What does it feel like? Ah, it feels like baked bread. Not that I know what that feels like, for want of a better term. It smells like baked bread, freshly baked bread. Okay, cool. I step into that and then I go, I'm just grateful that life is that way. Like vibration attracts like vibration. What I just told people is the way that I have seen people create millions of dollars, win over the loves of their lives, have miracles happen, go in regression. We're simply energetic beings having a human experience. And if you want to change, you got to change. You got to spend more time in the vibration of what you want than what you're currently in 24, seven hours a day going, oh, I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not capable. I can't trust anybody. No one loves me. Why would daddy have left? Something must be wrong with me because otherwise daddy would have been here. Know thyself if it gets in the way. But it's as simple as you asked before, what's the simplicity of it all? Simplicity is step into the emotion of the end result of what your heart wants to create, not what's going to solve your wound. Solving your wound is when I'm, well, when I'm rich, I won't have these debt collectors calling me. When I'm rich, I can tell that boss of mine to fuck off. When I'm rich, I can tell all of them to go and get fucked in my family that I'm giving them nothing. Yeah. Your heart wants to create. That's just dealing with your fucking childish wound. What my heart wants is the person is, I want to sit on a swing underneath my own tree with my kids on my lap, a couple of dogs. Look, that has an energy to it. Anybody who's listening to this, step into the difference of the two and I go, yeah, and I actually just step into this if it's already happened. I'm just grateful for that. Okay. On with my day. Where was I again? Not trying to solve shit that hasn't happened yet. What do I do with the money? If I win the lottery, do I pay taxes now or do I take it in installments? Do I, the fuck, stop wasting your time. Come back to presence. Stop trying to resolve your shit from the past or solve stuff in the future. Come back to now. Make the choice. Step into it daily. In that transition between when you're going to sleep or when you're waking up or you're coming out of meditation, you know, your heart is a different vibration then. The brain waves are different. Beta, alpha, theta, delta, gamma. And the work of Joe Dispenza talks about the heart is 50, 100 times more magnetic than the mind. You see, you're probably seeing a theme here for me, which is get out of your head, into your body. That's perfect. You're, you're, you're talking to a, a recovering cerebralist. So <laughs> perfect, right? So I'm in the learning journey of 
unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent to consciously competent to unconsciously competent. I'm on the consciously confident area. Like I know that and I'm practicing whatever it takes to, to be more in all of my modalities, my body, heart, and spirit. Yeah, that's awesome to hear, mate. My name, hi everybody. My name is CK and I've been a, I'm a former, I'm a cerebralist. <laughs> it's, been, it's been 100 days since I've had more than... Yeah, exactly. Well, 100 days, man. That's high praises. Thank you. It's been a few hours, right? It's, <laughs> it's, been, a few, it's been a few minutes in this conversation. Keep on turning up those meetings, mate. You got support. You got yeah, support. thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I want to underline something real quick. So in my mind, the way I, I visualize this is there is... Because we can always apply more or apply less to our desire. So I'm curious to know, because in my mind, my interpretation of Abraham Hicks' message is apply more. So if you want something, not just neutral, apply as much importance to that desire as you want versus equanimity would just be you want what you want, but neutral. So I'm curious to know how you reconcile. Is it based on your current study right now, is it you want what you want and press on that gas pedal as a way to <laughs> so yeah. the analogy is weight training uh -huh. I can build mass from doing dozens and dozens of reps all day long mm. or i can go in every three days work a muscle group where i train to absolute exhaustion and failure where that muscle cannot do anymore i cannot lift my arms they're both ways of going about doing the same thing mm. they can both work Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of which one do I want to apply that gives me the joy of application. Mm. Who all day long are sitting in this thought that they need to be grateful. You don't truly believe and expect that what you want is going to come to fruition. But if when you step into what your heart would love to create, let's say we make it once a day, but you go there viscerally, this is the key. Anything less than you feeling it and emitting a vibration is a waste of fucking time. Mm, interesting. You have to get to the failure. And the failure of the rep is being there and embodying it, going, I feel that in my body. What does it feel like? Where do I feel it? Underneath my heart. And it's, can I feel it more? Yeah, I can feel it more. Wow. That's awesome. Just the gratitude I had brings me to tears. Like, what am I really grateful? I'm grateful for the fact that we have plumbing in this country. Imagine life without ga without garbage collection. Imagine like gratitude or is a pulse to be at, but you need every day to come to the very thing you want to create. Now, if your stuff comes up, for instance, I choose the end result of something happening in my future. And then you go, but I don't fully believe it. That'd be right. Or tomorrow something happens like, oh, my tax, my bill's due. That'd be right. You're straight away going back to that expectancy because expectancy is everything. You make the choice, you get into it, you feel it fully, and you choose it. You let it go. You surrender to it. You hold the tension. But any time your stuff comes up around it, which is a negative emotion that you don't expect it, that's something for you to investigate. When you tune into it to get what you want, you step into the end result of it, and mm -hmm. something comes up for you, a bad emotion. Mm -hmm. in, in a nutshell, you're not expecting that it's going to work. So, oh, that's right. That bastard's going to fuck me again. Mm -mm. The government now wants their, is going to take tax from me. Whatever, whatever that thought is, that is the red flag. 
Because whatever has the power in the subconscious is created, but the subconscious doesn't know it has the power until you act on what you're thinking. So if I'm standing in the end result, I'm like, yeah, being grateful for it as if it's already happened. And I go, yeah. And I come out and go, yeah, what action do I need to take? I need to file my taxes. I need to get another job. I need to go back and study. I need to buy a lottery ticket. I need to love my family, whatever it is. And you do it. That's because subconscious goes, oh, that's right, because we're going to be wealthy having what we, okay, yeah, cool. But if straight away you go, I'm not getting up early to go and study or to train my body. No, I'm not going to do that. That'd be right. And you act on that by not acting. Subconscious go, oh, that's right, because you don't really want what you're talking about. It's just bullshit. Subconscious has the power. What you act on tells the subconscious what has the power. That is the difference. If you can do that all day long, little by little, power to you, you'll create very quickly. If you're not creating very quickly, hmm. then because you actually don't truly believe it or expect it. So it's the quality of our stepping in an end result and what we do next, not the quantity that makes the difference. If I just lift my arm up and down like this a thousand times a day, I'm not going to build muscles nearly going to complete failure once a week. Yeah. Different schools of thought. So guys, for, for those of you that are listening, not watching this, you can look at this from a spiritual point of view. You can look at it from a psychological point of view. You can look at it from the physiological point of view. Mm -hmm. Here, here's how I would articulate it. Now the cause and an effect manifestation of your thoughts and intention all that, I can't quite prove it to you, but what I can say is your physiology is it's what's real. So just think about it from that point of view. Can you put your own physiology through your mind, through your thought, through your intention in a place of, let's say gratitude, something that you really enjoy that puts you at ease. And from that place, my experience has been then, then the world is full of possibilities versus if I'm at the physiology of anxiety, nervousness, resentment, anger, then my whole world of possibility shrinks down to very tiny. And then also I'm not very fun to be around. Uh, it's not fun being CK. So just on the experiential level, if I want to optimize for a life for joy and fulfillment, just on the physiological level, that's what I'm optimizing for, right? Not, not to mention the metaphysical, the intentionality, fulfilling under the future, all that stuff. That stuff aside, just on the physiological experiential level, that's what I optimize for. Yeah, but, uh, I would echo that. Yeah, I would echo that. So I'm curious to know, one thing that I, I segue to a, to a separate question, one thing that I love that you said is, the only weapon the ego has is doubt. So in navigating the internal chaos and the chatters, the monkey mind, doubt is a very effective weapon that I am vulnerable with because my mind is so uh, weaponized. It can be used to solve problems, so it can be used against me. So for the younger CK listening to this, that's that battles with imposter syndrome or self-doubt or what ifs or scenario planning or the potential enemies coming my way. What would you say to someone like that listening, battling with doubt? It makes me laugh to think that doubt is the only weapon the subconscious has against a veritable 
arsenal of our creative minds born of joy and the only thing that brings us down are different versions of doubt but this is the nature of life to know thyself to see that which is in the way because there's no problems to solve here. It's just what we'd love to create. I want to go back to what you were saying about the different levels of competence, I should say. And that first level is everything, unconsciously incompetent. People can stay, tying it back into where we started, people can stay in that unconscious incompetence, simply choosing to create something else. There's no problem here. I just go about creating something else, and they create it. But once you start down that path of understanding and seeing or becoming conscious of your incompetence, it digs you a hole. That's the path that we talked about, which I don't recommend for everybody. It's a path you need to go down because it's just my health, my relationship, whatever it is, it's at a point where I can't not delve into this. But if you can stay unconsciously incompetent and still create what you love, then I say, go for it. And the simplest way to do that is when doubt occurs, just say, thanks for that, but no, I'm going to create that and I'm just going to step in the end result of that. What do I need to do? And I'm just going to expect that it's going to work. I don't know how it's going to work. The unknown, the dance floor of the gods, giddy up, give me a ticket. And shit gets created. I mean, it's almost like that's my task is to become redundant in people's lives. That's why I don't do as much one-on-one sessions anymore. I can do far more with ripple work like this and coaching of sports teams because I can give them a cataclysmic shift in a moment, a visceral experience that changes them, that ripples out to their communities, et cetera. That it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You got doubt. Whatever. Yeah, but oh, I got this wounding. Whatever. But, 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 but whatever. Because the most powerful people I know are children like that. You just go, yeah, okay. And they forget about it. They're like, goldfish. Goldfish is the most powerful animal on the planet. They forget. Yeah. Three seconds or seven seconds, I think it was a memory time. Whatever it is. Yeah. Ah, Dory, you can speak well. <laughs> yeah. What a blessed life. It's like my. My relatives who, God bless them, when they had my great uncle when he had Alzheimer's, and he laughed at it. He said, ah, oh, it's, it's great. Mandy Nolan is a great comedian in Australia in an area that I lived up in Byron Bay. She started doing a course, an improvisation course for Alzheimer's patients. Mm. And they were unreal. They literally would ask the orderlies about it. These people can't remember their families' names. And they go, are we doing the, is Mandy coming around this today, tomorrow? To, they loved it because... They're in their element. The mm. joy of improv is nothing. Mm. You go, and then and you make it up. They put hats on and go, you're a captain now. And it was hilarious. Mm. They would literally, and they, would, they loved it. They stepped into the unknown. The unknown is where it's at. And the unknown of just going, I have doubt. Yeah, whatever. It's mm. like our analogy we talked about before, the gurus would say to me, it's just a tree. Wise man, so much more than a tree. It's actually... We can talk about this satsang for seven years about how it's more than a tree. And then they go, okay, it's just a fucking tree, mate. You go, oh, so you know when you've arrived. Doubt, schmout. The young CK, young Kirk, I wish I could have said that to myself. It's just doubt, mate. Go back to what you love. Doesn't mean It doesn't mean anything about you. Yes, 100% agreed. And I would say to the younger CK, in hindsight, looking back, the younger mm -hmm. CK, 
it took ayahuasca ceremonies really deeply into the visceral pain and suffering of what that I have. Oh, I don't have to experience that. I can let it go. But it, it wasn't until I experienced all of it, then I could choose. Curious to know for someone who's still on their path that their doubt is real. They see it as real. Like it's actually what's happening in their life. What's one thing that they can take on as a way to practice letting that go? That's the point of no return. That's what we talked about. They have to go into becoming conscious of their incompetence. Mm. What we just talked about before, that saying no to the doubt and just going away and creating anyway, their journey back to that is long. It's the alchemist. They've got to go on the journey, the trip to come back and realize they've had it inside them all along, the same as you did because you were too smart from too young an age. You would never have been satisfied. It can't be that easy. It can't be just as simple as letting it go. Mm. What does that even look like? It's tell people to slub themselves. They go... What does that look like? Got no, no concept of it. They have to go to dying and death. They go, oh, and the nurturing of themselves to fully come around. So that cat was out of the bag for you. And I understand there are kids out there just like that or younger versions of us or anybody. And just realize that therein lies the journey. Therein lies the ability for them now. They need to know themselves. They need to go on the journey to understand themselves. And every culture has methodologies for that we suffer in the society for not having coming of age ceremonies we really do we really do it's just an absolute tragedy that we are not at the age of as young men or women 11 12 13 that we're not sent out to the wild to survive for five days or to fight three other warriors we're not expected to win the fights or to slay the bear we're just expected to survive we know that a death to our youth, a death to our childish nature. We are now men and women, and we will act as such. The problem is we've got a society filled with children just giving over to their wound all the time. Yep. If you see our TV, you would see that all over the place for sure. The sensationalism that takes place in press. Again, it means something about me. I need to make my name here in making something bigger than what it is. Come on, people. It means nothing about you. So my recommendation to anybody who is at that point where they just can't go, oh, it's as simple as that, is they need to go on the journey. And I can't tell them exactly what, what that journey looks like other than them saying, choose the end result of creating this or creating that. And in going after that creation, my stuff's going to come up. And I choose the wise man to come into my life. I choose the experiences to come into my life. I go on the search. You lose the right to complain when you haven't been on the journey. Mm. People want to do medicines without going on the journey. Go on the journey, leave here, travel down there, get lost in the jungle, almost die. Have your shit play out. So guys, if you're listening, at best, you have a better definition of who you are. Know thyself. At worst, you have some really great stories to tell your friends. I almost died in the jungle, man. So <laughs> either way you win, either way you win. Yeah. Uh, Kirk, do you mind if we do some rapid fire questions or complete? Is that cool? Yeah, sure. Can't guarantee I'll be any good at it. In movies that shifted the way you look at reality. Yeah. Powder. Mm-hmm. But there was a different lens to look through than being a teenage boy in 
semi-rural outback Australia that there was wonder and beauty in the world because it was just a different model. You were the third person that mentioned that movie to me in the last two yeah. days. Yes. Have you seen it? Oh, I, I love Potter's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Potter's great. Uh, I'm going to rewatch it now that you're the third person mentioning it to me. What is your definition of purpose? Purpose is <laughs> elusive. I had searched my purpose since I was a little kid. It wasn't until I gave up on wanting to know that it became obvious to me. It was the 29th of February this year. And I was actually in a five rhythms dancing class and a bolt of lightning struck me, like coming through me, struck me to my knees. And a voice said to me something, so something about this is what your task is. And I just lost my shit. It's just undeniable. What was interesting was two days after that, I went to the psychic expo and uh, which is always fun. It's always fun to go and check out that stuff. And I just got called to go and listen to someone talk and I'm talking and then they said, and as after I was over, I'm like, why don't I even understand why I'm in here? And as I'm walking out, the woman goes, excuse me, go in the back. If you don't do what they told you, what your guides told you this week, if you don't do that, you're going to get your ass handed to you. <laughs> I walked out of there. I walked into another one. I actually walked in there. I had to walk back into the same room and listen to another psychic I'm sitting in there. And this woman says, you, I've got to say something to you because your guides won't leave me alone and I can't do this talk to these other people until they say, if you don't do what they told you to do, there's, it's going to hurt. You're going to be in physical pain. So um, I went on that path. Uh, thank you for sharing that story with us. All right. You ready for the next question? Yep. What do you do to not take yourself too seriously? Dance. Dance. Any sport you can dance? It's put music on and rock out. Nobody's watching and I'm a goof man. And uh, just got to let it all hang out because it's just energy. It's just like, ah, whatever. Yeah. I think them for a woman who appreciates my goofy letting it all loose on a daily basis. Awesome. What's your definition of fulfillment? Fulfillment. Laughter. Mm -hmm. With joy. Like, yeah. Same thing in many cultures, all the wisest of all the gurus that I've met, the ones who are like, one with the universe and all calm and perfectly dressed. They're full of shit. It's the ones who are all messed up, like slightly about. They're the ones that actually, they're in it. And they're just so, it's, it's real with it to me. It's interesting. Yeah. When I look at the facilitators that I respect most, they don't have this facade of, mm -hmm. I know everything. I have all the answers. My life is perfect. Like right away, I know uh, that's maybe, but that's not a real embodied teacher to me. Someone who's embodied teacher to me are, yes, they are able to hold the space when mm -hmm. to, but during everyday situation, they're just regular human beings and have a great time in life. Totally. And yeah. you said the word embodiment, I think that's the key. You just feel it from them. They're embodied. They're not perfect. They're embodied. Yeah. And it's often a case of also the, the cobbler's shoes are always the worst. You know what I mean? The dentist's children's teeth aren't always the best. It's like mm -hmm. the, the master doesn't, you never want to meet your heroes because they're only going to let you down. They're not perfect. And if they are, fucking run. Yeah. They're telling you, they're bullshitting to you. What's your definition of wealth? Man, if I was to be adored by a woman that I adore, mm. I think I could live anywhere. Maybe that's facetious because I've come from 
being white privileged and growing up with a family that we always had enough food on the table. But at times we've been broken and without food again, but long periods of time. And you think if I had been in luck, it just wouldn't have mattered. Love those, love them while you got them guys. Seriously. It doesn't matter. What have you got going on between you and the ones you love? It doesn't matter. Let it go. It doesn't mean anything about you. Go up to them, find them tonight. Just fucking hug them. Just hold them, hold your kids, hold your dog, hold your lover. Hold your mom. That would be wealth. It's interesting. I've never said that before, but that would be wealth to me is to be, to adore a woman and have a woman adore me. Thank you for sharing that. What's one book that you've gifted the most to other people who are seeking to elevate their consciousness, to understand more of their purpose in the world? Yeah, there's, there's two. There's William White Cloud's Magician's Way. Given that a lot. That's a great alchemist type tale about what it is to find your, your heart, your heart truly loves, and a lot of the principles that we talked about, but doesn't really dive into intuition much at all. So it's a great little poem, great book. I recommend it, The Magician's Way book, but I've also given away Alan P's uh, little $9 book, which is What I Know About What I Know About Women. And you open it up and there's nothing in there. <laughs> it's completely blank. That was just such an honest gift to give to people, to give to my mates around the world. You go, women, we love them, but we just don't understand them. We're trying. Beautiful. Kirk, I thank you so much for sharing your heart, your story, your experience, your wisdom with us, especially in interfacing with someone who is a recovering cerebralist, right? So I really appreciate your humoring my curiosity and the insistence on making it more operationalizable, making it tactical. The reason is, I hope you know that because they can believe in the principles, but I also want to give them something that they can try on as well. I really just deeply appreciate you. Thanks, Jeff, for putting us together. Um, thank you so much for sharing your heart with all of us. Yeah. yeah, mate, I want to give you a shout out that uh, you're doing valuable work because you're coming from your heart. Almost if you come from that curiosity of the child, you have a ripple effect and that's all we can ask of anybody. So uh, very proud of you for taking those steps and coming from that space on a week to week basis. So keep up the good work. Noble warrior you. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much.